The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus, the liberating King, and live in his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. God bless you, Ecclesia. I just smile uh, seeing you and uh, so many people that I love in this room and that I'm just blessed to get to share with you. I think I'm especially excited to share with you from the series that we're in, a message that uh, has shaped who we are as a church and I'm hoping the truth of it today uh, will impact you in some really uh, powerful ways. A couple of weeks ago, I introduced kind of this path we're gonna walk together. Sean built on it last week, and we're gonna be talking about what it means to be the church. Part of that means we're gonna look back to history to look at some figures in church history and things that we learned. And part of what I invited you to a couple of weeks ago, and it's kind of a foundational piece for this series. If you missed it, I wanna encourage you to, to listen to the podcast. And part of what I invited you to is to say, Um, maybe you could join me in not ever going to church again. That maybe we're a people that aren't intended to go to church, but to be the church. And that when we're the gathered church, we're just reminded that we're a part of something bigger and greater. And that I believe that thing, I had some time to rest, I had this sabbatical, and I got to think about like, what do I wanna do with the next 20 years of my life? I've spent the last 20 years leading Ecclesia And to be able to stop and pause and realize, I believe that the most important things that will happen in the world will come through the church. I believe if we're ever gonna deal with the rampant racism and hatred that exists in our country, I will be, I believe it's because of the leadership of the church. I don't believe anybody else can address those wounds with love and grace that can do what Martin Luther King Jr. invited us to do, which is to say, the only way to drive out hate is with love. It won't be with more love, right? The news channels won't fix that problem, but the church can. I believe that uh, kids that need clean water, that they will get it when the church is generous and radically generous and we share what we have and we realize what we were given doesn't really belong to us anyway and we live with open hands. I believe that for our brothers and sisters, fellow Ecclesia and Stephen Sherry Scott this week that lost a daughter far too early. She leaves behind uh, three young children And as they grieve, I realize they need a church. It's a church community that comes around them and loves them. And it's even as we stood in that hospital room in her final moments, there was hope. There was a sense of of, uh, meaning from being together, even in our most difficult day, even on our hardest day of all of our life. And so it's in that context today, I wanna speak to you about one of the most important aspects of being the church. I believe that there is a myth Um, that uh, has been propagated in the church, that the idea of being a part of church is you find a group of people that are just like you and you join with them. You find a group of people that think like you, that look like you, and you join with them. And what we're gonna look at is that the greatest strength of the church is actually our unity in the midst of diversity, that it's the diversity that makes us strong. Mitzi Mock is one of the pastors on our staff and she welcomed you when you got here. And Mitzi was a part of our staff years ago. They've served in India and most recently, she and her husband Jerry were serving in Iraq, specifically in Kurdistan. And they're making the difficult transition actually. Most of you think it must be really hard to live in Iraq. And Jerry and Mitzi would tell you, no, it's really hard to live in the United States um, where people often don't look out for each other in the same way. She'd tell you like people in Kurdistan, they're just really kind. 
They really wanted to welcome you into their home. They're just having a challenging adjustment back to this world. And, um, and Mitzi, uh, when she's here over the weekend leading our church, sometimes teaching or preaching or leading our small group ministry, she'll ask people, and she's been asking all summer to people like, what is it that drew you to Ecclesia? And, uh, and she's brought back to the staff all these great comments that are really encouraging to the staff. If you ever think about encouraging our staff, I wanna encourage you to do that. Um, it's a hard job, ministry is hard. And and uh, one of the things that Mitzi brought back to us that she said surprised her is she said, she would ask people, what drew you to the church? And she said, I heard over and over and over again, the chairs. She <laughs> said, I, I was drawn by the chairs. In fact, one person said more specifically, when I saw the chairs, I knew that it's possible I might fit in here, right? See, we believe at Ecclesia, you may not realize this, um, the chairs are intentional, right? We believe everything preaches. And the chairs say to us, right, that diversity is way better than homogeneity. You go to most rooms, all the chairs are the same, right? I think, well, how boring. Why would you have them all the same, right? And the truth is it's practical, right? We're different shapes and sizes, right? Some butts are bigger than other butts, <laughs> right? And some of our butts got bigger over the last six months. Like I need a different chair now than I needed six months ago, right? Anybody else, amen? You got a little, it's just part of the journey, right? And, uh, and the chairs are intended to say, hey, we think everything's more beautiful if it's different. If it has varied uh, shapes and sizes and colors, and some of them are more comfortable. You need to get here early to get those. That's part. <laughs> of the mix, right? That's part of what we do. I, one of the things I learned, relearned on my sabbatical um, was I, I got to start reading the Bible like I was just a Christian. Um, for 25 years, I've been a pastor and I'm always reading the Bible for sermons. And I spent 10 years leading a Bible translation project. And you read the Bible in a particular way when you're doing that. And over the last three months, I just have read the Bible probably like you hopefully read the Bible. Like, wow, this is really, that's really beautiful. That's really good. That means something to me. And I was reading it this way and then I got pulled back into pastor mode all of a sudden because I was reading in Acts 16. This passage never hit me before. Um, Acts, we hit on in the beginning of this series. Acts 2 is the reason that I'm a, I'm a pastor. It's the reason that I believe in the church, that the church gathered in Acts 2 and they shared what they had and they ate food together and they loved each other and they learned the teachings of God and they went out and shared them together. And if anybody had a need, they just shared what they had and so nobody was needy. And I read that passage, I go like, I wanna be a part of a church. I wanna be a part of the ecclesia. That's the Greek word for church. And I was reading in Acts 16 and they're starting the first church in this town called, place called Philippi. And in Philippi, they're starting the church and it's fascinating. You, you probably missed it too. But there's the first three members of the church in Philippi. Three people come to faith in Acts 16 of Philippi. The first one is a lady named Lydia. Lydia comes to faith and she is a wealthy woman. She sells purple cloth, which means she's dealing with really wealthy people. Like in that day, if you bought purple cloth, I mean, you were, you, you, had, some, you had some resources, right? Lydia came to faith. <coughs> then the next person we see come to faith in Acts 16 is this woman who uh, it calls her, only calls her a slave girl. She had been trafficked. She was owned by someone. And that person, we don't know exactly what she was doing, but they were using her to gain profit. And she had some kind of spirit that possessed her. And Paul got a little frustrated because she wouldn't stop talking one day. And he cast this spirit out of her and she came to faith. And she became the second member of the church in Philippi. Right? And then after that, it tells us this story. 
<coughs> of God breaking out in this prison in a beautiful way. And this guy who, uh, as best we know, he probably used to be a Roman soldier. He was the prison guard. And when these people began to worship and the way that they treated him, he came to faith. And at the beginning of the church, this is unbelievable, Ecclesia, we have a really rich woman that came from an area in Turkey. We have a slave girl trafficked from someplace we don't know. And we have a middle-aged man who used to be a Roman soldier and carries great stature because he's a Roman citizen. I mean, that is a really diverse beginning of a church, right? It's a bit for us like if we were telling a joke and we're like, there's an Aggie and a rabbi and Queen Elizabeth going to a bar together, right? <laughs> That's what it's like. You're like, what, what, those three? Yeah, those three. They started the church in Philippi. And you think God was trying to get three people that were just alike? No. He was looking for three people that were really different. Do you think those three people in the flesh and in their ideas of the world agreed on anything? Probably not. They probably disagreed on almost everything. They saw the world in really different ways. If you're a rich uh, merchant and you're a slave girl who had been trafficked, you're gonna see the world in really different ways. And what I wanna suggest to you today is that I believe that's the strength of the church. That if we'll live into that truth, and what I also want to suggest to you today is that the reality of the way that our world operates, for many of us, it's made it the hardest thing to truly embrace about the church. For many of us, we'd like to just go back to like, can we have the German Lutherans that all like the same beer and eat the same sausage and live in the same place and believe all the same things? And I want to suggest to you, nothing against German Lutherans. They really do brew great beer and they're really nice. But if I could be a part of a church like this, where people didn't agree on everything, and we had really different stories and perspectives on life and experiences that we brought to the table, that our life and our strength and our effectiveness would be so much greater in that place. Plus, because we come from different places in the world, I love the fact, most of you know this, I wouldn't choose any other city in the world to be a pastor other than Houston, Texas. People call me and say, well, you started this church and it's done what, like, would you come pastor this church? I want to go, are you kidding me? I pastor a church in the most ethnically diverse city in the United States. That's the best place in the world to demonstrate the truth of what we see in Acts 16. And so today we're going to look at, as we will from time to time in this series, some different figures from church history. You would have to be a legit church historian probably to even know this guy. Uh, one of our longtime board members, uh, Steve Turley, is a church historian. He teaches church history. Um, at Fuller Seminary, and I told him today, hey, I think you'll be really excited. I'm sharing about Jeremiah Burroughs. He's a church historian, and he goes, who's that? I don't know who you're talking about. He's a random, really small figure in church history, but I want to suggest to you that he made a huge impact. Uh, there are a number of things that he could be known for. This is a photo of Jeremiah Burroughs. He's obviously a very handsome man <laughs> with a devilish kind of mustache and a beautiful soul patch. That's where um, he started that trend, apparently. And uh, Jeremiah Burroughs was born in 1599. Can you believe today, this is what I want to tell you, you're going to learn a lot from a guy that was born in 1599. And he died in 1646 when he was thrown off a horse. He died at the same age that I am today. He died far too young. And he offered some really beautiful truths to us that before Ecclesia was started, I read uh, what you could call a manifesto on denominationalism and schism that shaped who we are. And from the very beginning of the church, people would ask us like, oh, so you're non-denominational, right? And uh, by the way, non-denominational is actually a denomination, which gets really confusing. Um, <laughs> And I would tell them, no, I read this guy named Jeremiah Burroughs. 
And he says that the best thing is that we ought to belong to everybody. We ought to cooperate with everybody possible. And so we seek to be a part of as many bodies and unions and fellowships as possible because we believe that that's a gift to the body of Christ and our unity. And so we are multi-denominational. We, we want to belong to many, not belong to no one. Jeremiah Burroughs is uh, the one who really uh, led us to that place. Um, he, um, he spent most of his life in ministry in the UK. Uh, he went to school to study uh, theology at Emmanuel College in Cambridge. Uh, he was kicked out of Emmanuel College for nonconformity. So um, I think most of the people that make a great impact in the world would probably be kicked out of college for nonconformity at some point. He had ideas uh, that ran contrary to many people of the day and were threatening to some. I, I spent, on my sabbatical, I spent some time, uh, I shared with you, in the UK countryside. And one of my favorite things to do was just to go to small, old churches. Some of these churches were eight, 900 years old. And you had the sense when you'd sit in them. And part of it I just loved, when you're on sabbatical, when I'm, I, I've loved being back to work the last two weeks, but I gotta tell you, I'm going. And I'm constantly like, this weekend is a puzzle. I gotta figure out a funeral and a car pickup for my daughter and all these things and move her into school. And we're just going. When I was there, I'd just go sit in the church and I'd go, I don't know if I'm gonna be here for a half hour or an hour. This is one of my favorite churches. We, uh, Lisa took this photo. We hiked up this hill. This church is in uh, Weymouth. And you kind of get the sense there's cows all around it. You pull back at this one, you really get perspective for where it is. We, uh, I don't know if it's the Christian thing to do, but we took wine and cheese up there. <laughs> and we just, we sat for a while and we ate wine and cheese and bread. And the cows were kind of roaming around us. And I'd go sit in those churches and I'd just imagine like, if these walls could speak, right, what would they say? And in some of those churches that Jeremiah Burroughs was in, People were so um, struggling with new ideas and differences that literally um, people would get so angry. There were times he was chased from the pulpit. <laughs> I, like I read you, just so you know, I read you, like I'm fully aware. Some of you think that I don't notice that you're text messaging through the whole sermon. <laughs> I know, and I know the difference of how you look at your phone if you're looking at your Bible on the app, right? <laughs> I know the difference, right? And I've got a rule, it doesn't matter what's going on at church, I got a rule, if four people go to sleep, my sermon's done, right? I mean, it's over, because I'm literally like, they're not paying attention, and it's just not worth my time. I gotta read you that way. I've never thought I might have to read you where I'm like, these people might try to kill me, I better run, right? <laughs> It's just a totally different idea and time, but that's what Jeremiah Burroughs was going through. If you wanted to summarize Jeremiah Burroughs' life and his impact on me in many ways, you would do it with the motto that he hung in Greek and Latin over his door. And I've got to think of something to put over my door because I've realized everybody that's amazing from history has something really cool in Greek and Latin that they put over their door. And this is what Jeremiah Burroughs had over his door in Greek and in Latin. And what it means is difference of belief and unity of believers are not inconsistent. Difference of belief and unity of believers are not inconsistent. He says, we don't all have to believe the exact same thing. We could actually believe the same basic things, the same important tenets, and those things could hold us together and we wouldn't have to believe every detail exactly the same. At Ecclesia, what that has meant for us from the very beginning, go to our website and look at our doctrinal statement. And some of you look at it and go, did these guys just rip off the Apostles' Creed? Yes, we did, that's what we did. 
You know why? Because we think it's this foundational statement for what Christians believe, and outside of that, we're not ready to go on record about every little thing because we actually believe that believing some different things about those other and secondary things makes us a better church, not a lesser church. And so I wanna invite you just to remember what those things are. We're gonna read it together. This is the Apostles' Creed. You wonder, what's the core belief of Ecclesia? What does it mean essentially to be a Christian and be a part of this church? What should I believe? Here it is. I believe, you could say it with me. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Just look at those last few statements again for a minute. We believe in the forgiveness of sins. That means we believe God forgives us, and we're called to forgive others. We believe in the resurrection of the body. We believe that this world is not the world we were made for, and that there is a life everlasting. Ecclesia, I want you to hear this. These are the beliefs of hopeful people. Because of Christ, we're hopeful. If we get caught up bickering over the wrong things, we will cease to be those hopeful people. And that's what I wanna talk to you about today. Why did Jeremiah Burroughs believe that unity was so important? He believed that the church had to be united or it would not be effective. And he was really afraid that denominations would become this thing he called schism. People would break off from each other. They'd go, you're not really the church. We're right, you're not right. And And you know what? He predicted a lot of it long before it happened. Why did he believe unity was so important? Well, Jesus said it was. John 17, Jesus prayed for us. He's at the the end, his final days, his hardest days, his hardest days on earth, and then he pauses to pray for us, and this is what he prayed. He says, I will no longer physically be present in this world, but they will remain in this world, his disciples. As I return to be with you, Holy Father, remain with them through your name, the name you have given me. May they be one even as we are one. He says, while I was physically present with them, I protected them through your name. I watched over them closely and only one was lost. The one the scripture said was the son of destruction. And now I'm returning to you. I'm speaking this prayer here in the created cosmos alongside friends and foes so that in hearing it, they might be consumed with joy. That's what God is hoping will happen when we reflect on this prayer today. He wants us to be one and he prays that that will make us joyful in being one. I have given them your word and the world has despised them because they are not products of the world. In the same way that I'm not a product of the corrupt world order, do not take them out of this world. Protect them from the evil one. Like me, they are not products of the corrupt world order. Immerse them in the truth, the truth your voice speaks. That's what we're listening for today. In the same way you sent me into this world, I am sending them. It is entirely for their benefit that I have set myself apart so that they may be set apart by truth. I'm not asking solely for their benefit, Jesus says. 
This prayer is also for the believers who will follow them. Isn't that cool that Jesus was mentioning us in his prayer? We're the ones that would follow and hear them speak. Father, may they all be one as you are in me and I am in you. May they be in us, for by this unity, the world will believe that you sent me. Jesus says, unity is what will create this sense of belief that I am the Messiah. I'm the one who was sent to redeem all people in all times and all places. This belief was at the core of the Judeo-Christian belief. For Jews, the, this prayer, they would pray, the Lord our God is one. They would pray it every day, the Shema prayer. Shema Israel Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Ikad. That the Lord our God is one God and we are one. We see it in Deuteronomy 6. Moses articulated, listen Israel, the eternal is our true God, he alone. You should love him, your true God, with all your heart and soul and every ounce of your strength. And then Jesus adds to it when he's asked, what's the greatest commandment? What's the core of the commandment? Jesus adds also to love your neighbor as yourself. So why is unity important? Well, Jesus says it is. He says it's the way that we'll know that we're actually the church. So I got six things from Jeremiah Burroughs I want you to hear. And, um, and I'm hoping that this truth from the 1600s, it's hard to believe, almost 300 years ago, someone wrote something that I believe is spot on to where we are in our life and our culture today. This is what Jeremiah Burroughs says, first point. Um, Jeremiah Burroughs says, doctrinal differences are inevitable. Now, this is still hard for many of us because we really, the way that we come to many of the things we believe is prayerful. Hopefully you read the scriptures, you pray, and you come to a place, you go, this is what I believe, I believe this. And you know what? You're gonna have somebody sitting on the same row with you here at church that did the same thing. They prayed, they read the scriptures, and they decided, I believe this, and you're in different places. And so we began to wonder, like, who's right, right? Is somebody right and somebody's wrong? And we often want to paint it that way and it makes it really hard. Jeremiah Burroughs says those differences, they're inevitable. They're always going to be present in the church. So what do we do? Second point, he says, he says doctrinal differences in secondary matters are still important. So this is what he's saying. He's saying when you come to this belief, whatever it is that you believe, and you've been led by the scriptures, you've been led by the spirit and prayer, and you come and say, this is what I believe. It's important that you seek to live out that belief. That's really, that's important. You still have to realize that others are going to believe something different, but you ought to hold to those. There are a number of places in the church from the beginning of the start of Ecclesia that we have embraced a reality that we've said, hey, we're going to acknowledge that those secondary differences are important, but we're gonna choose not to fight over them. So I'll give you one example. Baptism is one of those, right? So when we started 20 years ago, there really were very few churches you could find anywhere that had said, hey, we're not gonna fight over baptism. So at Ecclesia, there's some that come, and it depends on your tradition, you'll go, hey, it's really important to me that we baptize my baby. Because for me, where I come from, I want our baby to be welcomed into Christian community. I think it's really important. Baptism as a baby is really important. We have others that say, no, we wanna dedicate our baby Right? That's the tradition I, I came up in. Like we dedicate our baby, and then when our kids come to faith on their own, we're going to baptize them. Most churches in history, they've literally killed each other over these things, right? Killed each other. We came together at Ecclesia and said, that seems like a really bad idea. Like, <laughs> like could, we, 
could we sit down over some queso and try to figure it out, right? And just go, hey, um, like, could we respect both traditions? And, th- and this is what I believe, Ecclesia. I believe one day we're going to get to heaven and Jesus is going to be pouring the good wine and we're not even going to think to ask were we right or wrong. It's not even going to occur to us, right? He's, he's got better, like, you think Camus is good. Wait till you taste the wine in heaven, right? We're going to get to heaven and nobody's going to be thinking a bit about who was right about this or that, right? We're going to be present with Jesus and we're going to realize, wow, that wasn't really that important. And so you, you need to know that's unique and that's different for a church. But we've said as a church, that's the kind of posture we're going to hold. We're going to believe that doctrinal differences and secondary issues matter. Now, part of what you need to know is that we also would say there are places that the scripture is like so clear. It's just so clear that you can't ignore it. And so there's not a lot of room. And and I'll give you an example that's come up a lot recently. And it's come up in the life of our church in ways we can respond this week. And how are Christian people supposed to treat people that are immigrants? And I'll just tell you, the Bible, it's like, it's not a mystery. You don't have to be a theologian. You don't, like, you just have to read. And the Bible says you treat immigrants like honored guests. You welcome them to their home. They become like family. Over and over, it says, you need to remember that you were once also immigrants. And so it's in those places we read the Bible and we go like, I don't think this is one of those secondary things. It's one of these primary things. We ought to do this. So like, I'll give you a a clear example. This week, um, we were offered a proposal from our friends at Urban Strategy. They came to us and said, hey, we have an opportunity. It's just come up. Many of us have been praying. Hey, God, would you help some of these kids at the border that are separated from their families and there's not housing for them that seems adequate and what do we do? And Urban Strategies came to us and said, hey, the government's asked us to do this and we need uh, Ecclesia to come up with 36 families that would provide foster care uh, for these kids. They're gonna be many different ages. And uh, we wanna set up a daycare center at Ecclesia so that Monday through Friday, there's a place for the kids to come and get some education and encouragement and be fed and provided for. This is one of those things that like, I I can tell you this, nobody on staff at Ecclesia has been sitting around going, we need something to do. Like we have nothing to do, right? (laughs) Nobody, there's nobody on our staff. Everybody's moving, doing things. But I can tell you when somebody comes to you and says, you know how you were praying for those kids? Well, you ready to find 36 families? Now, most of you need to be able to speak Spanish or have some Spanish or at least own Rosetta Stone or something. Um, <laughs> but I'm just telling you, like when, when somebody comes to you with that offer, you don't have to think and pray about it very long. We would have to take Jesus off of our website if we wouldn't do it, right? We'd have to just go like, we're, we decided we're not really Christian anymore. Because to be Christian means it's really clear, like that's what we're supposed to do. And so we figure out together, how are we gonna do it? We don't know exactly yet, but you can pray for it. If you think you're one of those 36 families, you, you could tell us. The Eucharist is another of those places, right? I'm gonna preach long now, it's raining, you got no place to go. <laughs> I'm slowing down my tempo. I was auctioneer just a minute ago, and now I'm just gonna, like Marvin Gaye, smooth. I'm just gonna be slow and smooth. You're just going to get a coffee and sit here anyway. So just let me talk to you instead. There are places like, like Eucharist would be a good example. Right? Many of you, I love the fact that Ecclesia, we have a lot of you that come from a Catholic family and tradition, right? And Catholics would say like the, the bread and the wine becomes the body and the blood. I grew up in a Baptist tradition that said it's just a, a memory. It's just a memorial. 
Um, we're somewhere in between in the way I talk about it and that what I would tell you is I think that Jesus is present like in the pores of the bread in a way that I can't explain to you. If they ran a DNA test, they might not find Jesus' DNA, but Jesus is there, like he's there. Like you can believe any of those things and come to the table with an ecclesia. You don't, you don't have to fill out a test to say, I'm with you on that. You can be any of those places. Jesus is gonna do through the Eucharist what he does, and we think that's a gift. And that diversity of belief is okay. Here's another place that lands really clearly in our culture today, right? If you're a Christian, it is very clear in the Bible that there is a Christian sexual ethic. In other words, the Bible says how we worship God with our sexuality is important. So we offer our life and our sexuality to God. If we're a Christian, we believe all of it belongs to God. Now, what you need to know is that reasonable Christians will disagree about how they worship God with their sexuality, that people come from different places. And nobody, it's really hard to be the person telling everybody else how to worship God with their sexuality. We've just never done that at Ecclesia. We have had a lot of times as pastors that we sit down and we say, what does that look like to offer your life to God and your sexuality? We know the Christian sexual ethic is not do whatever you want. We know that's not what it is. And we, but we do know that everybody has got to come to God and say, this is who I am, this is what I've been given, how am I going to worship you? And that none of us ought to spend any time trying to figure out how somebody else ought to worship God with their sexuality. That would be a waste of your time. And, and to judge or look down or to be harsh, that would be a waste of your time. That would be a waste of your energy. Instead to say, I'm going to love my brothers and sisters and I'm going to support them and I'm going to walk with them. What we have often in our culture are two polar opposites and they choose to create schism based on that. I'm over here and you're over here. And instead what we wanna do is say, no, those secondary differences are still important. And it's important that you live out your conscience in the ways that God would have you. C.S. Lewis, at the beginning of Mere Christianity, talks about something like this. And he says, um, there are places, right, where we've been silent. He says, such silence need not mean that I myself am sitting on the fence. He says, sometimes I am. There are questions at issue between Christians to which I do not think we've been told the answer. There are some to which I may never know the answer. If I ask them in a better world, I might, for all I know, be answered as a far greater questioner was answered. What is that to thee? Follow thou me. Anybody come to God with something that's maybe not your business and God just said like, is, is that about you? How about you follow me? He says, but there are questions as to which I'm definitely on one side of the fence and yet say nothing. For I was not writing to expound something I could call my religion, but to expound mere Christianity, which is what it is and what it was long before I was born, whether I like it or not. So what do we do when we're at this place that there are some of us that find ourselves in one place in doctrine and somebody else in another? This is what Burroughs says. He says, those differences, those differences can be useful. It's actually a good thing to be in a community where there are differences. Now, I could preach about five sermons on this and I don't have time to, but let me give you the shortest answer I can give you. You know why it's useful? Because usually when you find two polar extremes, you know where the truth is? 
Somewhere in between. Somewhere in between. And so you know what's helpful? Is to sit at the table with people that view things differently and learn from them and learn from their experience. And if you camp out in far extreme camps, my view is you rarely are going to find the truth. And yet you're much better off if you walk that path. And I'm gonna talk with you at the end about how to do that well. I think our greatest strength, Ecclesia, can be the diversity of cultures and people and beliefs. And that we can walk together and say, we don't believe all the same things about everything when it comes to the most important things we do. And then we choose to work together. And that's where uh, Burroughs is going. So uh, fourthly, this is what he says. He says, no single structure represents Christ. This is the big fear. What happens when people separate over doctrinal differences is they then declare we're the church they're not the church right so we got it right they got it wrong we're the ones that are right and they're on the outside right and most of those things we don't have the kind of clarity that we get to do that to one another and so it's a really bad idea so Burroughs says be really careful we all represent Christ we all belong together don't create schism then the fifth one this may be my favorite this is what he says he says true unity is based on common gospel and it's expressed through cooperation. How how do we find true unity? This is what you do. We find the places we agree and we work together. We're here, I don't know if you guys realize, like we're not here on this earth just to sit around and think about heaven. We're here to do some things, right? And, and we find at Ecclesia, the more we do together, the more we're energized by what God's called us to do. We're gonna find those things we can do together. And the way we do that is we look for common ground. You know, we've drilled water wells with Mormons, right? So we're not Mormon, right? Everybody's probably figured that out by now. Like, we don't, like, I don't get all of it. Like, they own Pepsi, but they can't drink caffeine. I don't get it. I don't know exactly. They wear some weird underwear. I don't get any of that. Like, I don't know. I don't know what it's like to be Mormon. I'm not Mormon. I don't agree with a lot of things that are Mormon. But you know what? Mormons also agree that people should have clean water. And if we could work together to drill a water well with them, I think it's a great idea. They believe people are hungry. Let's work together to do that. We think that's a great idea. And so what we want to do, and this is the exact opposite of the culture, I'm telling you, Ecclesia, this is the part that if you'll lean into this truth, it will be radically transforming for the world. Everybody in our culture is saying, I'm looking for things that I disagree with you on so I can cut you off. I'm gonna look and that we disagree on that, you're out. And we're cutting people off, we're creating schism. This is what I think true Christians do. They look for any common ground. We have have some common ground there. We're, We're in this together. And they come together. And one of the reasons that I take people to the Holy Land, it's not just to walk in the footsteps of Jesus, it's to see people that have had different life experiences than others. In one of the trips, I, I took a, a group and, and uh, part of what we'll do, and sometimes it's painful because things can be painful in the Palestinian territories. I'll have um, my friend, uh, Sheikh Saeed, come and share um, a little bit of what it's like to be a Palestinian and to live in the city of Nablus. And sometimes what the Sheikh has to, to share is not what American people want to hear, right? In fact, you can imagine he can be a bit critical of our current president. Um, he, he has some perspective on that that's different than ours. And, and uh, one of the very well-intentioned sweet ladies I was with when we got up and left, she said, I think the problem might be that he's watching CNN. <laughs> I said, well, I think the problem is that he's living in occupied territory, right? 
and his perspective, right? Again, we think in worlds of let's choose which channel, let's choose which view, and let's run to those people. And I think the problem is you might be a part of that camp, right? We got to live in a world that when you look Sheikh Saeed in the eye, and I have, and I love the man, and I go, you have the same dreams for your kids that I have for mine. He has so much love for his neighbors. He has a sense of justice that comes from God. He's a good, loving man. And I meet him and I quickly find we have way more common ground that we can build on. Let's not look to the things we disagree on. Let's find those common places. Ecclesia, that's what it looks like to be Christian. Lastly, this is what Kung says, and I'm just going to give you some places that you can respond. It stopped raining, so I'm going to speed it up. This is what he says, lastly. He says, cooperation destroys schism. It's all of a sudden we start working with Sheikh Saeed and we realize, man, I love that guy. And we work together and it's impossible to be in schism, right? You find these people and you're like, well, we totally disagree on one, two, three, four, five social issues. But you know what? We work together and we're at the Harmony House barbecue that we had yesterday. It's one of the most holy events you could ever be a part of, right? And they're just, there's meat smoke all over everybody and they're serving up meat to our homeless brothers and sisters and we're feasting and there's great music. And it was like Woodstock yesterday with like just, just smoke everywhere. And it was just, and people just loving each other. And none of those people are the same. You got people that are very rich and people that are very poor and they're all in it together. Just like Acts 16 in the first church in Philippi. And this is what we believe. The more we cooperate, the more we form relationship. And it's hard to hate people that you serve with, that you work with. So what can you do? What can I do? Two things before we go. First, you need to know this. You're, you're an Ecclesian. That doesn't mean um, that you need the help of our staff to do so. Our staff couldn't do a fraction of the things God's called our church to do. You're an Ecclesian. You're an ambassador of Christ and you're an ambassador of our church. This is what I need you to do. Look for ways to work with other churches and groups. Like, when you got a friend, invite them to say, hey, will you be a part of the Harmony House thing? Are you doing something with the homeless that we can do? What are the things we can work on together? Because we believe when we're in relationship, the more we work together, the better off we are. And we just find those things. And the reality is, like, we're a part of a church that's just, we seek out opportunities, right? And when you start telling your friends, you got friends from Venezuela, and you're like, my church is going to the border of Venezuela. People will come with you. It's a gift. And what we want to do is invite other people in other churches to do that, right? Because you know what? The need in Venezuela is more than Ecclesia could just do all of our budget to Venezuela, and it wouldn't be enough. We need other brothers and sisters to come along and say, hey, let's do that together. There's so much opportunity to do that, to find all of your Spanish-speaking friends that you think, hey, they might be willing to do foster care uh, for one of these kids. Could you, would you want to cooperate with my church in that? Because that would be a gift. And the more we work together, the better. And this is the really big one. This is what I want you to think about. Would you be kind, curious, and teachable with those whom you know you disagree? Would you seek out some people in our community and in the world and just say, hey, I think we probably disagree on some things, but would you approach them with a posture of kindness? Curiosity, I'm telling you, just goes a long way. Like, just be curious about other cultures, other beliefs. One of my favorite things to do with our staff, I'll take them to Hong Kong City Mall 
and just give them some money and say, go buy something that you don't know what it is and then we'll eat it together, right? Just, I'm just curious, well, I don't know what that is. Well, let's find out, let's eat it, right? And you're like, I have no idea. Is it a fruit, is it a pastry? I don't know. KSSO, what is this? And we go, let's eat it and we'll find it out, right? This curiosity about life and culture. And if you sit down with somebody and say, your perspective is different than mine. I'm just really curious where that comes from. And you're teachable. Kind, curious, and teachable. And I'm telling you, Ecclesia, I believe we'll find that the diversity that's present is our greatest strength, not our great weakness. I don't want to be a part of a church where everybody sees the world the same way, brings the same food to the potluck, and shares the same experience. I want to be a part of a church that we say, let's come together, let's learn from each other, and let's share that generously with the world. I think that's the gift of being the true church. Let's look for reasons to come together, not look for reasons to be divided. As we come to the table, would you give me a moment to pray for you? Lord God, I thank you for my brothers and sisters. I thank you for the unique opportunity it is to be a part of your church. And I pray, God, that as we walk the path that you have for us as a church, that we would be a uniting influence in this city and in the world, that we'd find things we can work on together, that we can serve together, people we can love together, that we would embrace the kind of humility that says we haven't figured everything out. We don't know. In fact, we think the differences that we share in some secondary matters actually make us a better church. We haven't put out a statement on everything we can think of because we actually want to hold life in that beautiful tension. We want to learn. And so we pray today, God, that you would bless our best efforts to be your church. We thank you for the wisdom of a man born in 1599 that can speak into our trajectory as people and families and as a church even today. We thank you, God, for this bread. We pray that you would bless it. We pray that as we take it into our bodies, we'd be reminded that we're part of one big church. And so those believers gathering now in Haiti and in Cambodia and in Africa and in Argentina and all across the globe, Lord, we're a part of them. And so where the economy has suffered this week in Argentina, where people are desperate as the peso has been devalued, we stand with those brothers and sisters, even as we funded a meal for the churches there today. Lord, we stand with our brothers and sisters in Palestine. We believe that all people are created in your image and they long for freedom and we pray for a peace that could come that would defy any expectations of our government or the UN that you would do something beautiful. You would bring people together. Lord, we pray that you would use your church, that you would use us to be your hands and feet of peace and shalom in this world. We pray all of this together, and we pray it in your name. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.ecclesiahouston.org.